Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The pomp and ceremony was dialed down, and the word count was pretty low too. But what does this very brisk Queen's speech tell us about this government's priorities? Lots of levelling up, but not much saying what that means. We're going to fill in the gaps. We've also looked back at the promises in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto. We counted 287 of them to see how much progress the government is making on those. Some good news, some not so good news. We're going to give you the scorecard. And we're going to take a trip to find out more about Australia's apparently impressive handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and asks what happens as the world opens up, but Australia perhaps does not. Well, I'm joined today by Giles Wilkes, IFG senior fellow and a former advisor in number 10. Hi, Giles. Hi there, Roman. Good to have you with us. And Sarah Nixon, our senior researcher, is back with us from Australia. Hi, Sarah. Sorry to keep you up so late. Not too late. <laughs> it's, it's not too late. And it's my pleasure, Bronwyn. Great. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Latika Burke, a London-based journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Hi, Latika. Hi, Bronwyn. How long have you been in the UK and how have you found not being able to go home? I've been here five years and ever since I moved, I've been home at least once, maybe twice or three times per year um, because I still work for my uh, publication and do a lot of of coverage of Australian-based news as well as as foreign news. So it's been particularly challenging. I tried to get home in 2019. Uh, Of course, everybody understood, uh, sorry, late 2020. Of course, everyone understood when the pandemic hit that Australia's early actions in closing its borders uh, in and out were necessary and Australia's done a great job. We're going to come on to that. Death. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's been it's been difficult, really difficult. Yeah, rough rough year for lots of people but can I, but I can absolutely understand that. Well, thanks for joining us. Okay, let's start with the Queen's speech. This was the government attempting to show that it was getting back to business after the pandemic. So there were 30 new bills in just 10 minutes. A lot of spending announced in that short time. An awful lot of talk of levelling up. Giles, start us off on this. What purpose did this serve? Well, I mean, they have to have these Queen's speeches as a con- for a constitutional reason, I understand. The Queen has to announce the bills that her government are bringing forward. And it gives the government often a chance to say, look, this is what we're really for. And given that this government has found itself stalled in terms of having a proactive domestic agenda for a year or so, thanks to COVID, it was a great chance for it to sort of spring back and say, now that we've powerfully dealt with that to a large degree, we should, this is what we're, you're getting positively out of this government. And so um, from that point of view, I mean, thinking economically, I still found it slightly disappointing because it's pretty much the same stuff that you might have seen um, in January 2020. I don't see that it's changed the way they think or how they operate, or even that the cogs have turned a lot on the previous things. And we now know a bit more about how they're, meant to operate all right well how much of that is fair how much i mean so for example you know you might say the government might say a year ago you know when the pandemic was just getting going the government had hopes of 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 achieving this much wider manifesto and slate of things it wanted to do and this is just getting back to that what's wrong with that well i think in some cases that um you know governments can walk and chew gum at the same time in that yeah, you might say, oh, everyone's been thinking about COVID or everyone was worrying about Brexit. That was the other thing. But there are some civil servants whose job will have been, for example, to think about the trade-offs around social care. And there will be other ones who will have been thinking about, well, what exactly does it mean to be levelling and how would you be doing it? Or how are we going to get, for once, a proper programme 
of home insulation, which is vital to get going on net zero. So I'm less patient with the idea that this is something they just haven't had a chance to get on with because there's hundreds of thousands of civil servants whose job it is to think about a lot of these things. They won't all have been trying to plan how to model COVID correctly or how to source PPE and so forth. So it's those specific things where we know they have to be done anyway, where I just I haven't detected a sense that what we all know to be difficult political and policy trade-off to come the government has now decided, OK, we're politically strong. This is where we're going to go with these. I just haven't yet seen the progress on those. And um, we keep being told, well, OK, wait for this white paper or wait for the spending review is the great one. And I only have half a, an area of sympathy for that because, yes, yeah, some of it's about money. But what about explaining to us what you think about the way social care should be paid for? I, I think that would not be an unreasonable ask at this stage. Rather than waiting, as you said, for to be told later in the year, just take this phrase leveling up. And in the whole ceremony of this thing, this 95 year old monarch uh, in a hat that everyone was admiring, the nation seems completely united on that one. Uh, the, the, the script got her to utter this very modish term leveling up. Do, um, do we have any more sense of what that term means? I mean, there's a, there's an old sort of sort of joke or apocryphal story about the South Sea bubble where there were company bubble companies being released, and one of them was for the purposes of a venture of great promise, but the uh, investor not to know what. And this feels to me like what the levelling up is. Uh, the, to quote from the notes, a landmark levelling up paper will set out bold new policy interventions to improve livelihoods and opportunity in all parts of the UK. And we still don't know what these are because, I mean, this is partly the whinge of a former insider. You, you were referring yes, to that. Uh, yes, yeah. definitely <laughs> to identify myself. A yes. former insider. We get embittered when new people turn up and say, hey, we've spotted a thing that needs fixing, and we're going to fix it with our sort of bright-eyed um, enthusiasm and can-do spirit, whereas we sort of sourly know that these are already difficult things with real, real, real trade-offs. A classic one in this levelling up space, if you call it helping regions that are falling behind, some conservatives think that throwing public money in there just distorts those economies. It makes it more likely you're going to work in public sector jobs and not that private sector is going to work. Others are more Heseltonian and say, no, the state is what's going to help people along here. I'd like to know which kind of a Conservative Party this is. Is it going to be one that unleashes private sector or uses the state to lift things up? Or do they think they found some kind of a third way? All right, so let, let, me, let me just ask you, because this is a really important point you've brought us to. There is a battle of ideas going on. Which, which you've been talking about a lot within the Institute, about whether governments can run the economy very hot with a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of spending. And the Chancellor does not appear to be of that persuasion. We get all kinds of signals that he would like something much more prudent in the way of national finances. And there was a diplomatic one sentence nodding to that kind of goal. Do you have a sense that this, this uh, Queen's speech was in effect promising a lot of public spending and that Johnson is winning that battle of ideas with his Chancellor? I think um, that's certainly where Johnson wants to go. And I think maybe I wouldn't be surprised if the Chancellor slightly shared this. They're hoping that if things go really well in the economy, the fiscal trade-offs that you're right, the Chancellor is more worried about, will be much less hard-edged. So if we have 8% growth instead of 6% growth during the rebound, um, then we might have another 15, 20 billion pounds of spending and that money could do an awful lot of things. So I think. I mean, 
there's certainly a difference between the two here. But I think both of them would quite like to see the economy run as hot as it possibly can. There's there's a, there's two different constraints on the policy that, we're, that are in this debate. One, who's more excited to see the economy run really, really hot and not worrying about inflation? And I think Stephanie Johnson would be very happy with that. And the chancellors traditionally are more worried about that because it means rising rates. And who's more worried about running a risk with the fiscal deficit? And again, I'm sure Johnson would be much more likely to shrug. That's just his style there. Now, but either of those could go either way. If we're able right. to grow the economy without inflation, then both of them could have their way on the fiscal matter, I think. All right. So it's still open at this point, uh, as, yeah. as far as you see. But, you know, both, both, both views represented there. Sarah, I mean, we're going to come on to the Conservative Manifesto in, in a bit, and you've been doing some really terrific work on that. But just take us through some of the gaps in the, this Queen's speech. Yeah, I mean, I think Giles has already pointed some of them out. But to me, the biggest gap was really on social care. So we saw before the 2019 election, the government promised they would urgently, I quote, um, bring forward cross-party talks to find a solution to social care and social care funding. And 18 months later, all we saw in the Queen's speech was, I guess it was almost a placeholder, right? They said that they would bring forward a solution to social care. But as Giles said, no hint of what that might look like. And you really get a sense that difficult decisions, in this case, who's going to have to pay for the increased cost of social care if there is more funding put towards it, who is going to have to pay for that? That's going to be a really difficult conversation to have, um, politically speaking, and you just get this sense it's the can being kicked down the road again. Right. And there are other gaps that are going to be controversial, very likely, aren't there? I mean, you know, what's going to happen on planning uh, some of the constitutional things that just got a brief phrase about rebalancing powers between the executive parliament and the judiciary. Those can stand for really quite a lot of change, can't they? I mean, certainly they can. And, and this is a really interesting one where the government said at the time of the election that they were going to bring forward um, a democracy, constitution and rights commission. Um, and we've quietly seen that in the intervening 18 months watered down um, into separate little inquiries picking off little bits here and there. And obviously we've seen in very recent times a number of, I guess you could call them integrity scandals. Um, so certainly that's something that the government is is going to, you would think would have to address. Nice word, integrity scandals. Um, I'll remember that. Latiga, what did you make of it? To be honest, I thought it was very, very similar to the sorts of plans being laid out by the Australian Conservative government. And that is huge spending. Uh, gone is any concern about fiscal restraint. I mean, there are no fiscal Conservatives left. Uh, if you look around in Australia, uh, they're shoveling money out the door. So a lot of spending. What about the whole tone of this? Does it seem to you a plausible um, program for, for example, a post-Brexit country? Yeah, I think this is exactly what voters want to see. Um, they're hugely uh, shocked by by the, the shocks that the coronavirus pandemic has exposed for them and global supply chains. In Australia, the conversations are very very similar. How do we restore those regional places that lost out in outsourcing manufacturing to China? And the, the debates are almost parallel. And how do you think an opposition should respond then when you've got a government, uh, and as you say, in many countries... Uh, determined to spend an awful lot of money almost without acknowledging the need for restraint? 
Yeah, this is a really interesting question because Labor Tonight delivered in Australia their response to to a very similar high spending budget from the from the Conservatives in Australia, and they didn't raise concerns about debt or deficit really at all, and that's unheard of. You know, only ten years ago when the Labor government were introducing huge stimulus programs uh, as a result of the financial crisis, debt and deficit was the centrepiece of that debate in going too far than the context. Now there's just no debate whatsoever, and I think that's going to come from the community uh, much more. So it's it's very challenging for Labor because you have Conservatives aping their economic policies and leaving them with very little room to go. That's fascinating with obvious echoes in the UK. And so what did Australian Labor do in in the way of opposition? They announced a housing fund. They focused heavily on values, pointing out that if you believed in women's equality, climate change, some of these more socially based themes or social values, then this was the party for you. Economics, not so much. What about the Queen herself? We've obviously had the sad death recently of the Duke of Edinburgh and a lot of chance then to look back over the, the, the Queen's reign, um, but also forward over the, the role of the monarchy. What does it look like now to have uh, the Queen as Australia's head of state? Interestingly, and, and Sarah, I'd be interested in your observations being in Australia, but I was very, very surprised at the level of interest and sadness uh, convey when Prince Philip died. We were not expecting that level of interest. There's been huge interest in the royals in Australia since uh, the marriage of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. And there's a huge amount of affection for the Queen. Somehow uh, that has transplanted also to the Duke of Edinburgh. And, and when we died, when he died, we were really, really surprised by just how much interest and genuine grief seemed to be expressed. I think when the Queen dies, that may change the conversation in Australia in terms of a, of a republic. But I think we'd really need to see how Prince Charles went on the throne before we had any serious conversation. There's almost zero appetite in Australia for, for a republic. That's really fascinating. Sarah, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I would 100% agree with Latika on a lot of that. I mean, I think there is kind of a latent bubbling away desire to have our own head of state but I don't think that there's really enough momentum at least at this stage to really put it seriously put it on the political agenda and I absolutely agree there's a lot of affection for the Queen in Australia but I mean I was amused by I'm often amused by the parallels between the UK and Australia and certainly on the death of Prince Philip one was the fact that much like the BBC was inundated with complaints about interruption to programming uh, so apparently it was the ABC, uh, its Australian counterpart, about interrupting its pro- programming um, to uh, mark the death of Prince Philip. So some interesting parallels there. Yes, but, you know, interestingly, readers like to complain about too much royal coverage. But I can tell you from the metrics, they absolutely love reading it at the same time. I will remember that one. Um, so it sounds from both of you as that there's, there's not an appetite right now to start talking about the about being a republic or so on. Um, that, that, that's really going to wait some years.
All right, let's leave that there. We're going to have to switch from the 2021 Queen's Speech because, as uh, Giles was saying, many of the items in it have a yet-to-be-discussed, yet-to-be-revealed quality about them. But we're going to come back to those items as the government says a bit more about what it actually intends on those things. Let's go swing ourselves back to the 2019 Conservative Manifesto. And, Sarah, you've published a fantastic new paper this week which looked back over the promises in that manifesto, how many have been met, how many... Uh, have been missed. And a shout out um, here to Hugo Guy, the Eyes deputy political editor, who called your report the most readable 80-page think tank report I've seen, mostly thanks to the color coding, but the words as well. I'd add on that. Well done, Sarah, and thanks, Hugo. Let's get down to the numbers. How many promises were there? So we counted up 287 measurable promises of an action or an outcome, taking out all of the aspirational kind of rhetoric. Which is hard to do. Well done for that. How many did the government? (laughs) How many? Um, So by my reckoning, well, by the reckoning of our team, they've completed 59 and they're on well on track to complete 78 by what in theory would be the end of the government's term. So that's 137 out of 287, nearly halfway. Okay, so that's one year in and a bit. That looks like a very good number, especially given the pandemic, is it? Um, look, I mean, I think you act, you absolutely have to give the government full credit for what it has achieved. I mean, I don't think there's any, I mean, we're talking about a bit about it before, but I don't think there's any minister or, or civil servant that would have imagined spending all of 2020 and into 2021 dealing with a global pandemic. So that takes up a lot of bandwidth. So the fact that they've been managed to get through so many of those commitments, that is an achievement. But at the same time, you have to look at what were the commitments that they actually delivered. And some of them were really challenging, obviously, negotiating a trade deal with the EU, no easy feat. But a lot of those um, commitments in the kind of the the ticked off column were things like introducing legislation, conducting reviews, conducting consultation, or even promises actually not to do anything at all to keep the status quo. But then when you look at the things they haven't done, I'd say a lot of the things in the on the to-do list are things that are real on the ground challenges that require delivering tangible results on the ground, not just writing a white paper. I mean, Charles talked about net zero and levelling up. I mean, I think they're just a taste of some of the delivery challenges that give you a hint that knocking off the second half of the manifesto might not be as easy or as quick as it has been to to do nearly the first half. Thanks for that. Well, Giles, what do you make of this? Do people care about how many of these manifesto promises have actually been delivered, to use that jargon word? I mean, if I can don my cynical hat first, um, the Liberal Democrats... I'm glad, you, I'm glad you have another one, but yeah. yeah well, no, I, I'll, I'll try and do, do the optimistic one at the end to keep people listening. But the um, the Liberal Democrats, of whom I, for whom I was a special advisor for four years under the coalition, certainly behaved as if ticking off the things in the manifesto was the way to get gratitude and voter recognition afterwards. So look, we promised to raise the income tax threshold. We actually got so much more of our manifesto in the coalition agreement than you'd expect given our strength. Um, and it didn't seem to work out that way. It wasn't like voters went through with the previous manifesto, ticking and crossing, and then deciding how to vote. It's not So voters are not that mechanical. And I'm also more I'm concerned in general that a, a government that appears to have found their winning formula for winning over voters well before any outcomes have have come to pass, is not going to be that passionately interested in whether 
educational literacy in Mansfield has gone up by four basis points over the period, or whatever it is they're going to be trying to measure, whether it's levelling up or the manifesto in general, they're going to want to be able to make much broader, more vague statements. And so we've got a nice big boomy economy and we got Brexit done and the virus has gone away. It's going to be way more important than anything in the actual manifestos. I would also comment, reading uh, Sarah's excellent blog post on her piece, um, what they seem to have achieved are the inputs, not the outputs. So they say, look, we're going to pass this legislation, we're going to start this consultation. But the actual outputs, which are both ill-defined and much longer to, to come, come about, it's really hard to see anything in there. So we've got a Brexit deal, yes. We have produced a global free trade in Britain that benefits from the fact that we're now in charge of all of our trade rules and so forth. Nobody knows where that is, but we got a Brexit deal. Look, I was just going to um, jump in there because I think one really important thing to remember on, on that point um, that you kind of raised there, Bronwyn, is that the public actually doesn't remember that many manifesto commitments at all. So you got some polling on this after the 2019 election and they asked people what they remembered from each of the two main parties' manifestos. And 43% on the Conservative manifesto, 43% of people said Brexit, 22% talked about more nurses or the NHS, and they were the only commitments that got more than 10% recognition. All right, so people are, people are going to get one or two or three out of these 287 uh, things. I think even if we put it in the IFG Christmas quiz, people wouldn't get an awful lot higher. <laughs> Exactly. And of course, like, you know, it's it's a very different, not all election manifesto promises are created equal. Like, I don't wouldn't expect to see right the street because the government failed to deliver on its commitment to have debt lower at the end of the parliament than it was at the start. But you might re raise uh, a not too pleasant reaction, for instance, if you were to suspend or scrap the pensions triple lock. That's fascinating. Latika, can I ask you about Australia, whether manifestos serve the same purpose there? Well, we don't really do a formal manifesto as such, and I've always been quite um, bemused by this manifesto rigmarole that you have in the UK where it's even expected that a government would keep its promises. John Howard, one of Australia's most successful prime ministers, famously introduced this um, term into the Australian political lexicon of core and non-core promises. So when he, he was asked <laughs> after, like after an election, yeah, yeah, when he'd broken a big promise, he said, oh, well, that was a non-core promise, i.e. I can break that fine. And look, he got away with it, I think. Voters and I think cynicism is higher even than it was then. That that was um, where do you stop core and non-core laws? I mean, anyway, quite, um, quite. Yeah. Um, so we don't really have the same level of of commitment and ex expectation of follow through. And this is really interesting because climate change, for example, is a good example of where, where this debate's gone in Australia. So in 2007, Labor was elected in a landslide win to deliver a carbon trading scheme. And the opposition, which also went to the same, well, it was the government then, the Conservative government, went to the election uh, promising a same uh, carbon emissions reduction scheme actually turned around and started opposing this under different leadership in, in opposition. And then that mandate, uh, so, you know, if you want to use a UK term, a very big, I would say, core manifesto commitment from the new Labor government was actually stymied by the parliament and never got through and we still didn't really have, we still have no resolution on that issue to this day. So I think budget, uh, sorry, election promises have always been treated a little differently in Australia because we just don't have this same expectation that every single uh, line will be will be promised and then um, delivered after an election. 
That's fascinating. So, Sarah, what do you mean? You look at both systems um, often and compare them. What's the nature of the promise that politicians are making to voters when they, they are out on campaign in, in Australia? I mean, it covers very similar territories to manifestos, the sort of promises that you see out on the election trail. But yeah, as, as Latika says, I've had this same exact same conversation many times. Uh, you have to remember, too, we don't have the Salisbury Convention in Australia. The Salisbury Convention obviously being the convention that the Lords has to pass or can't block manifesto commitments. So we don't have that same kind of constitutional yes. need for that document and that clarity. I mean, I do have to say, though, that you can, it doesn't mean that election promises don't have force, even though sometimes, as Latika points out, with climate change, that dynamic can change. But, I mean, I think Australians would recall, I think it was the night before the 2013 manifesto, I mean, election, sorry, when Tony Abbott went on TV, he was the opposition leader at the time, and he said no cuts to health, Medicare, no cuts to the ABC, listed, I think, a small list of things that he wasn't going to cut. And then when they were elected and got into power and some of these services were cut, that struck a real blow to his prime ministership. So even if we don't have manifestos, election commitments still can have real political force. That's really interesting. Charles, what do you think uh, on this, about the nature of the promise that politicians in the UK are making? Should we hold them to it? Or is that really being too literal? Is their pitch really for something much more broad brush? The more unconstrained the government is, the more that sort of sticklers like us, if that if that counts as the we you're referring to in your question, the more that we should try to provide that constraint. Because, I mean, what slightly scares me as a as a sort of liberally minded person is unconstrained governments that have nothing to fear from anything are a really scary idea. You don't want them to think they can literally change anything. The protections that make a, make for a good, vibrant, democratic society, the institutions that scare or constrain governments, including an angry voter, um, electorate or a strong leader of the opposition, are there, are there for all of us. And if they don't care about whether they do well or badly, where are we? It's, it's, it's kind of risky. You're just then relying on their good nature. And that's something that slightly scares me. So in particular right now, although... I tend to be very fiscally dovish and say you can do a lot more. Um, I kind of like the idea that the Treasury worries ultimately that there's a limit because otherwise what, what are the limits on this government? And so no, I think we should care. Some, some people have to pretend they care even if they think that the focus groupers and pollsters who are right there in the room with the Prime Minister when he makes the decision don't. We still should because you need some kind of constraint that affects the system and makes them care about outcomes rather than just the appearance of things. Okay, great. So someone should care. We, the IFG, we, the voters, we care. Let's switch um, to something different, which is uh, the coronavirus and the pandemic, but stick with Australia. Australia's had a pretty good pandemic by many, many standards. It's had under a thousand deaths from COVID-19. Borders were sealed very early. Strict quarantine was introduced extremely strict and lockdowns have been swift and targeted. But the government has now suggested that borders will stay closed until well into 2022, which is raising a lot of other questions, as is the vaccine programme itself. Sarah, just take us into this. For a start, does life feel normal? Uh, In a word, yes. Where I am in Victoria, well, in the state of Victoria, the only real restriction, the only kind of sign that we're in a global pandemic is a requirement to wear masks on public transport. That's it, really. I have to say that 
it, there's a, this feeling in Australia that this pandemic, it's a terrible thing that's happening to other people in other places that we are more or less insulated from. It feels like being in a, in a bubble, really. Okay, well, it's almost impossible to imagine um, from, from over here. But when you and I were chatting just a few days ago, you were saying that um, Australia might have, the flip side of that was somehow finding itself going very slowly in the vaccination programme. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few, I mean, there are a few reasons why the vaccine rollout hasn't been as as swift as the government expected and that as we might have liked. So just for some some context, there have been 2.8 million doses given out, um, administered in Australia. That's in the context of needing to, to administer 45 million to vaccinate the entire adult population. The government had set a target of vaccinate, of delivering 4 million doses by the end of March. We're obviously into May and we're not at 4 million yet, so we're well behind schedule. There are two really main reasons why it's been a bit slower than expected. That's a big problem with supply. I mean, obviously, UK listeners will have seen news of the EU blocking shipments of AstraZeneca and local production hasn't ramped up as quickly as expected. And also the government initially, at least, didn't opt for a mass um, vaccination centre approach. The approach was to roll out through GP clinics and pharmacies, and and that's been criticised as not the most efficient method of of dealing with the rollout. I think the fact that we have been insulated from by the virtual border closes, the fact we've been insulated from the health impact of the pandemic, I think that had we been in a different situation, there would probably be a lot more pressure on the government to have sped that up more quickly. Would there be more pressure on people? Are you you hearing, are you feeling a kind of, uh, that people can't be, that they're not as interested in getting the vaccine because there isn't the same sense of fear? Um, So there's certainly some anecdotal evidence that uh, people currently eligible for the vaccine are shying away from taking that up. So at the moment, um, AstraZeneca is being offered to over 50s in Australia. Um, and there has been anecdotal reports of reluctance among that co- some of that cohort, at least, to take up the vaccine for fear of um, the side effects. And obviously, if you think your chance of getting COVID is zero, it makes it harder to persuade you to take up a vaccine where there is a very, very, very small chance of, of serious side effects because you're looking at an infinitesimally small um, chance of side effects versus what people think is zero chance of COVID. Latika, I mean, the line from the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is that in this country, we're living like few countries in the world today, and we need to preserve that, as Sarah has been describing. Do people agree with him? Yes. I mean, these measures have been hugely popular and the government has enjoyed uh, a lot of success. I think it's really important to point out here, Australia doesn't have a central government system. We have a federal system. And what the Prime Minister did at the start of the pandemic was get together those state governments. Most of those premiers are Labor and, of course, the Prime Minister is Conservative. And he got them together to form this new national cabinet. Now, together, that body decides the national response to the pandemic. The government has responsibility for borders. It swiftly shut them in and out. And the states have responsibility for health. So it, uh, those states roll out hotel quarantine and are responsible then if there's a breach of hotel quarantine for contact tracing throughout the community when we have outbreaks. Some states have handled that really well. 
others where Sarah is in Victoria, not so well. And that was really only their, their big sizable outbreak last year when, when they did have a leakage and uh, the rest of their defences were not up to scratch. But what has happened there is that two things. One, this whole all of society, all of government approach has, has risen up. That's been very well rewarded by the public and the public really like it. In fact, everyone I talk to in Australia who does focus groups and polling say the one fear they have is that the breakdown in political consensus will occur. They do not want to see bickering over pandemic responses. But what that's also done is because you have state-level labour involved with policies that overall the the, the federal government, which is conservative, is being held mostly to account for. It's really broken down any sort of opposition or questioning or any natural handbrakes that are on the system that are built into Australia's federal system. And I think that's been really disturbing and a perverse outcome because a lot of the success in Australia's management of coronavirus is actually resulting in some pretty inhumane policies. And we've seen these at the border. So what Australia has done is lock its citizens in and lots of its citizens out. And as I speak, there are around uh, between 35 to 40,000 Australians registered with the government outside the country saying we need to come in, but we can't. Now, this uh, went into a really dangerous overreach a couple of weeks ago when the Australian government banned flights from India. Keep in mind, the only people allowed into the country are citizens. Then they went further and in a press release issued just after midnight, no debate, no legislation, just a press release from the health minister, they also pointed out that there could be jail or fines of up to $66,000 for any Australian who tried to come home directly from India. And up to five years in jail. Yes. And am I right, 9,500 Australians um, in India who would like to come back? Yeah. And 650 of those are classified as vulnerable. You know, these are people who are really in danger. And so that was considered a big overreach. And I think one of the reasons why the government was allowed to get to that point was because there was no natural opposition occurring in the society, including in the media, which has also been very, very compliant. That is so interesting. And what about the, the position of people like you who can't go home to see family and suddenly being told that that may go on until 2022? Uh, is there beginning to be a kind of um, opposition from, from from Australians outside Australia? Not really. I mean, the expat community has been vocal, but we are lone wolves in the night screaming but and howling. But you have families back there. You would be surprised. A lot of family members sympathise greatly with what they see as the sacrifice of Australians in abiding by very strict lockdowns to keep their country COVID-free. The government's been very persuasive in telling Australians that what is required, the most extreme measures uh, seen in our history, are for the greater good because they're stopping death. And if you're an Australian and you're looking at uh, India, you're looking at the UK, um, a big grown-up country that's like our big brother, not managing a pandemic well. That's a very, very easy message to sell. Sarah, what are the economic consequences of shutting a whole huge country off from the world? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's enormous. Um, I mean, you have to you have to remember that, of course, the health measures or border the border closures have allowed the Australian economy to open up at home. So there are a lot of industries that have benefited from that. So, for for example, like, you know, you look at the arts sector in the UK, 
that's really suffering from theatres having been closed. The same didn't happen in Australia. But any Australian industry that relies on migrants or tourists, they're having a really tough time. Um, so, for example, the university sector, um, our Australian universities rely really heavily on international student fees to fund their research. What's happening at the moment is that the government can't give uh, any certainty about when the students will be allowed into the country because quarantine places in hotel quarantine are being reserved for Australians. So those students are looking to other countries like the UK, like Canada, like the US, um, and the universities are really worried that that source of revenue is, is going to dry up or diminish. Um, so there are certainly, I mean, hospitality is another one, relies really heavily on backpackers who can't, aren't, aren't currently allowed into the country. So, so yeah, there are, while a lot of businesses have been able to open up that maybe wouldn't have been able to had we had open borders um, and a much stronger health impact, there are certainly some sectors that are, that are really struggling with border closures. Thanks for that. Giles, are there things that we should have learned from Australia? Goodness, um, what a question. Well, um, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's done astonishingly well, but I don't know whether we would have managed to manage the same bargains politically here. Closing ourselves off when we're so much closer to a big continent, I, I simply don't know. What One thing that's really occurred, and there's, there are really good charts now for this, and I remember discussing this with you, Bronwyn, about 12 months 12 months ago is the trade-offs involved in managing COVID get better with time. The amount of GDP we lost in April last year compared to what we were losing in January this year is much, much less as we kind of massage our economy around to, to cope with COVID and so forth, which suggests to me that if we do have to do this again and we have to learn, the, the harsh lockdown approach is still the one to take because we know as a society, A, that we can rebound and get practically back to the path we came off, and B, we don't have to dip quite so hard. And I think also that the public accepts that trade-off and understands it. Now, but I'd have to understand the politics of Australia a lot better to know whether that really is sustainable and whether there is anger and impatience and people after a while saying, you know what, people are going to die anyway and all that kind of stuff. But um, I think... Australia and everyone else, we've learned that, you know, we can do this and come back and feel relatively whole if we're aggressive and um, big enough in our response. Hmm. One thing I find really interesting about the Australian example is how the states have remained very coordinated with a national coordination of that, where, as we all know, there have been all kinds of theatrics about Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland doing something slightly different. Latika, just just finally on, on this, is there anything that you... I think Australia could learn from the UK. Yes, I mean, there's two points to make here. One is the, the reason why Australia can afford to do what it's doing is because it's trapped people in the country. This is the only dem- democratic country with an, a ban outward on its citizens. What that's done is trap a huge amount of stimulus in the economy because you have suddenly people who would have been saving up thousands and thousands of dollars on overseas trips spending that at home. So, for example, uh, in the last year, there have been sales of Porsche cars at record highs than ever before. Property prices are going through the roof. So, actually, the economy is doing pretty well. Uh, unemployment is at 5.6%. The government's aim is to drive that down below 5%. And then it's getting into some serious skill shortages and reaching that point of the economy where you're actually never going to employ those people. So Australia can afford to do it. What I would say is that there are huge 
untold, almost immeasurable costs to Australia's strategy. Its soft power, I think, will take a serious hit from that. And because people like Australia around the world, they're not going to say this out loud, but I think Australians can. It follows a long line of Australia shirking its responsibilities on the global stage, whether that comes to asylum seekers, climate change, foreign aid. This is just another example. And it's also at no point has the government tried to keep the society together. And I think that's been really, really worrying. In the UK, for all of Boris Johnson's faults, and there are so many, he has made the vaccination project a project of British national pride. And he's being rewarded for that. And you can see that in the effect in take up and and lots of other ways. In Australia, there is not this healing kind of national pride that's going on. In fact, it's become very divisive uh, where Australians are pitted against Australians depending on what state or what country they were in at the time the pandemic struck. And I think uh, that Australia could learn from the UK about how to keep its society whole when times get really, really hard. Well, thanks for that. And on that optimistic note, us all wearing our optimistic hats, setting our cynical ones aside, um, we're going to have to wrap up this edition of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Giles Wilkes, Sarah Nixon, and especially to Latika Burke. Brilliant to have you with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. We've got a great new episode up there, which sets out exactly what happened in last Thursday's UK-wide elections, what might happen next, And you can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Do leave us a review while you're there. We're looking for Ben Houchen or Andy Burnham levels of support, please. And remember to check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk, where you can find Sarah's great new report. Everyone, thanks for listening. Enjoy the next round of restriction easing. And remember to go about your hugs with due caution. Have a good weekend. Bye.